On Friday afternoon, I saw a bunch of tweets uh, from people that I respect who informed me that Kanye West had released a new album and it was about gospel music. Uh, If you don't know who Kanye West is, I'm really not the person to help you understand that. It's kind of strange for me to include him in a sermon, not because of him, but more because of me. Uh, Nevertheless, the point being, it seemingly came as a surprise to a lot of people that this megastar perhaps has become a Christian. So Friday afternoon in the car, I was with my son and he played for me a couple of Kanye's new songs. I got to be honest, I I typically listen to 98.1, so I don't know a whole lot of Kanye's songs, uh, but the lyrics seemed to sound pretty legit. And it raised a question to me, gosh, did Kanye West really become a Christian? And you know, the answer is, I don't have any idea. Uh, But the fact is, if he did, it's the exact same miracle that has happened to every single one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ today. And as we look at our passage this morning, I want us to see that God can and do all things in his way and in his timing and in his goodness to us. So keep your Bibles open to John chapter 3. And this story, this narrative will be our instruction this morning, uh, both on this Lord's Day and on this special day, this Reformation Sunday. My prayer for us is that we may be humbled by what God has done in the lives of his people. So many of you are familiar with uh, the Reformation and Reformation Sunday You know exactly what we're talking about uh, when we use that word, that language to describe this last Sunday in October. Uh, But if you're not familiar, let me just briefly remind us or inform us of this historic work that we celebrate on this morning. This is being done here and in Reformed churches all over the world. In the 16th century, the church was confronted with the reality that the good news of Jesus Christ had been muddied. It had been clouded, and there was a need for work to reform the church. Inside the church of that day, from the time of the Middle Ages, the work of Jesus Christ and his accomplishment for our salvation had been replaced with man-oriented practices where man can do things in order to secure salvation. Perhaps the most infamous uh, of the issues in that day was the popular act of the church, quote, selling indulgences which was a fundraising campaign telling uneducated people that if they would give money to the church, then friends and family who were deceased could enter into heaven. If money was given to the church, can you imagine something like that? But yet, historically, that happened. This is just one of many practices that needed to be cleaned up, one of many practices that needed to be reformed inside of the church so that the pure clear, beautiful message of Jesus Christ would be heard and understood. Maybe the loudest voice of that day, but certainly not the only one, was, of course, from Martin Luther, who 502 years ago this week posted the infamous 95 thesis at the University of Wittenberg in order to create discussion about this issue. And in that document, he called for true repentance and true faith. Again, our opening hymn this morning, A Mighty Fortress, was penned by Luther. So from Luther's day, through the lives of Calvin and Knox and Zwingli and countless others, TCPC and other gospel-minded churches are to be about a continual reformation, 
Not just something that happened 500 years ago, but something that is continuing to happen. That we're always being reformed in the pure, beautiful message of Jesus Christ. And this movement 500 years ago sparked by Luther, when properly understood, is to affect every one of us. Not just historically, but personally. The the picture here is of the great reformation of the five solas of the reformation. And that is scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And that is our worship of God is based upon how he has revealed himself in scripture. And this is all his grace only. And we are to respond to him in faith in what he has done. And we see Christ as our only source of hope in this life and the next. And all of this is done with the motivation of God receiving the glory. So again, my aim this morning is that we look at this well-known passage in John chapter 3, well-known and well-loved, of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, that God would use these words to remind us, to refresh us, either for the first time or for the thousandth time. That we exist to give God all honor and glory for what he has done. So my question for you this morning is do you recognize what God has done and what he can do for you and for people all over this world? Do you recognize that? I want to mention two things from our passage. First, I want us to wrestle with the extreme blindness of mankind And then secondly, to see the glorious light of God's salvation. So the blindness of mankind and the light of God's salvation. First, let's look at man's lostness. Look back at verse 1. We are introduced to this man, Nicodemus. Let me suggest to you this morning, he is a fascinating, fascinating person. Let me explain a little bit about him. Nicodemus represents for us the very, very, very best a human being can ever be, at least from a religious standpoint. He's a member of the Jewish faith known as the Pharisees. This was a sect in Jesus' day who loved the law of God. And in many ways, they were noble in their pursuit. They really did desire to follow the law. They took the law seriously. Yet, in their incredible zeal to follow the law of the Old Testament, they failed to recognize the point of the law altogether. The law was given by God through Moses to instruct God's people in his ways, in his perfection, in his holiness. And there's a reminder, generation after generation after generation, that no one could keep it. And that we needed a Savior who would come and keep it on our behalf. Yet Nicodemus and the Pharisees not only continued this pattern of law-keeping and thinking they could do that in their own ability, they took the law so seriously, they added laws on top of the law. They went another step. And this is what brought the Lord's constant consternation upon them. They were especially notorious for laws regarding the Sabbath. To ensure that no one worked on the Sabbath in order to not violate God's commandment. You know, one example of one of these additional laws, I thought this was funny in my study this week. That some groups of the Pharisees held this. That women were not allowed to look in the mirror on the Sabbath day. 
because they might see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out and thus they would engage in work and be a Sabbath breaker. Don't they sound like a fun group of guys to hang out with? (laughs) Again, the issue here for the Pharisees is similar in the Middle Ages. It was the idea that our salvation could be to take the penalty of our sin away in some way could come about by our own effort. And verse 1 shows that Nicodemus was serious about this. It says he was a ruler of the Jews. So he would have been very comfortable with all of these laws and all of these extra laws and the belief that we are good enough to appease God with our effort and with our hard work. As I study and meditate on this passage, I think the tension in this whole encounter revolves the idea of why is Nicodemus going to Jesus at all? If he feels so good about himself and all of his laws, what is it about Jesus that he's attracted to? But yet here we see him in the middle of the night going to Jesus with curiosity and with questions. In verse 2, John reveals that Nicodemus was clearly intrigued by Jesus as a man and all the things that Jesus was doing. It appears that he came to Jesus to ask very serious questions, but notice Jesus cuts him off. He doesn't even let him ask a question. He goes ahead and gives the answer. Jesus moved right to the point in verse 3 that unless a rebirth has occurred, no one can see the kingdom. This confused Nicodemus like crazy. We see in verse 4 that he he has this laughable answer to Jesus. In verse 9, he essentially throws up his hand and surrenders and says, how can any of this stuff be? I think the question for us this morning is what do we make of Nicodemus? What does scripture reveal to us about him? What did Jesus think of Nicodemus? Let me just say it this way. Nicodemus did not know God. His sins had not been forgiven. He was lost. Nicodemus was not a believer. He did not have faith. He was spiritually blind. He was spiritually confused. He's trying to make sense out of spiritual things and in his natural ability, he can't do it. To use the words of the reformers, he was totally depraved. He had no ability to understand. There was nothing inside of him which was connected to the Father through Christ. Nothing. He was lost. As Paul states in Ephesians, Nicodemus was dead in his transgressions and sins. Paul says that the lost are spiritually unable to see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. Nicodemus was spiritually blind. But do you catch the strangeness of this man? Here he is, lost, blind, no ability to see Christ, not a Christian. But let this sink in. Nicodemus was incredibly religious. His external moral life would put us all to shame. He was smart. He was a leader. He was respected. He wasn't lazy. He aimed for the very, very best. All of these are commendable. And he's lost as he can be. I don't want to give credence to the Pharisees because Jesus never did that. But my fear for us as I wrestled with this this morning is that in our day, in our culture, 
I'm not so sure we're trying to please the Lord as much as we have reduced the Lord as someone who doesn't care. And that God is no longer holy and people can do whatever they want. So matter, no matter where you are this morning, wherever you're coming from this morning, you know, maybe this is you for the first time in church. Or you, maybe you've been coming your whole life, but please see the biblical reality this morning as Nicodemus's life reveals. Your religious work, your intelligence, your giving sacrificially of money, your effort, your rank in society, your authority, your niceness, nor your notion of God's carelessness, this will not take your sin away. This will not give you the Holy Spirit. This will not take your shame away from how you've been sinned against. And trying to earn God's blessing in your own effort will leave you just like Nicodemus. And that is, at best, you'll be outrageously prideful. And at worst, you'll be outrageously frustrated. But either way, you're lost. To all of us, may we join with Nicodemus and plead and go to Jesus and say, Jesus, help me to see. Help me to see whatever it is that you have, I want it. That's the cry of the passage. Give me the life that you have for me. So the lostness of man. So let's move on. Let me just say it again that we will never boast in the work of Christ until we truly embrace our position apart from him. Blind and desperate. Now, notice Jesus' responses to Nicodemus. And I pray that these words will humble us greatly and cause us to sing cries of hallelujah. There are three solutions that Jesus gives to the spiritual blindness. And it's going to confuse Nicodemus even more. First, notice the source of our salvation. Jesus gave the strangest solution for our spiritual state. He said that people must be born again. And of course, Nicodemus in his natural state interpreted that very literally. He actually asked the Son of God if he was required to enter again into his mother's womb to be born, even as he is old. We can laugh at that, but that's literally what he asked Jesus. But notice, it wasn't a joke. Jesus was not messing with him. He gave what theologians call the inescapable imperative. That is that something must be done to you. We must be born again. The birth that Jesus described here, of course, is not a physical rebirth, but rather it is a spiritual rebirth. The meaning of born again literally means to be born from above. That is that you must experience a birth that comes from heaven to you. Through the Gospel of John, the writer uses this picture as an act of faith from which heaven comes to earth. And for Nicodemus or for any one of us to actually see God's kingdom, that our spiritual state must come to life. It requires that God send something to you. This is the work, of course, of God through his Holy Spirit coming from heaven and making dead people alive. The picture here echoed throughout scripture is that when God speaks, the dead come to life. 
the blind can see. The theological term here is regeneration, and it means being made new. Notice that this crushed Nicodemus. It crushed all of his categories. It was not his effort. It wasn't his birthright. It wasn't his religion. It wasn't his desperation. Rather, it was the grace of God to send new life. So friends, I ask you this morning, are you humbled by the salvation? Do you see that the source of God's salvation is God sending his spirit to us? It's his life to make us see. He did it. But secondly, notice the means of our salvation. The source is that it comes from above. But then notice in verse 5 that this confusion continues for Nicodemus. Jesus responded to the question about entering his mother's womb again. Explaining that the solution for sinful man is a rebirth. And then it gets even more confusing. He says that it is a rebirth born of water and the spirit. Nicodemus had to ask, well, what on earth does that mean? We've seen the spiritual birth, but the mystery now becomes even more clear. That when we recognize how water is seen throughout Scripture, now we see that this is not just a reference, per se, to our baptism, but what our baptism signed to us. The complete answer here, I think, is found in the reality of that when God's Word comes to us, Scripture says that His Word makes us clean. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, Paul says... Christ gave himself for the church to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing with water through the word. Later in the gospel of John, in John 15, Jesus said, you're already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. You see, the source of our salvation, the means of our salvation, our salvation is that God's Spirit comes and makes us alive so that we can now hear the Bible. God's Spirit and God's Word go together. God makes you alive so that you can now accept these words of truth. No one comes to know Christ apart from the Holy Spirit's use of the Word. Again, be humbled, folks. We can't just figure God out. God reveals himself to us, and he has given his word to do that. There's a reason that Paul referred to the preaching of the gospel as foolish. That is, to a natural mind, this seems crazy. But when God's spirit works and he opens our mind to the word, this now is glorious. One of my favorite stories of church history, I came across this this week, is the conversion of uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon's one of the greatest preachers in the history of the world. But But he was converted when he was 15 years old on a Sunday morning because he got up that morning to go to church. And he was walking to his church, and it was a long way away, and there was a snowstorm that came. So he couldn't get to his church and he just happened to walk past a Methodist church where he lived. And in order to get out of the snow, he walked into the church. But because of the storm, there was no preacher there available that morning. And a lay leader in the church got up and read Isaiah 45, 22. 
It says this. Look unto me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God. And there is none else. And the word of God became alive inside of Spurgeon's life. And he was converted to Christ. Because of the word of God was preached to him. So you see the source of our salvation. It comes to us from heaven. The means of our salvation. It comes from the word that he has given us. But then lastly... Notice the mysterious power of our salvation. This third description that Jesus gives Nicodemus in verse 8. It's regarding the work of God's Holy Spirit and giving us capacity to hear these words of truth. Jesus revealed that the work of the Spirit is to be understood best by thinking about the blowing of the wind. If Nicodemus wasn't confused before, he certainly is now. Imagine this highly educated man, this religious ruler, encountering a man who could walk on the water, explaining, oh, no, 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 Nicodemus, what you're looking for, it's like the blowing of the wind. And the picture here, again, throughout Scripture is the wind is of God's breathing, implying to us that God is the one who is in control That he speaks and his message goes forth. Just as we inhale and exhale individually, we cannot live without doing so. Thus, God speaks and we cannot live without him doing so. God controls his breath. He sends his spirit in ways in which we cannot understand, but he can resurrect cold, dead hearts. The wind is sovereign. It blows wherever it blows. And we can only respond to it. Even on a day like today, we adjust our lives to the blowing of the wind. We cannot see it, but we cannot deny it. The wind will have its way. Either in the form of a tornado or a pleasant breeze. The wind rules the day. We build our lives according to the wind, not the other way around. And in verse 9, again, Nicodemus gives up. How can these things be? How can this be? And the answer, I think, the only response for Nicodemus or for any of us is to look down in verses 14 and 15, where Jesus said, Whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus alone can take away your sin and take away how you've been sinned against. The message to Nicodemus is the message of the reformers and is the message of today. Look upon Jesus, high and lifted up. He can transform your life. He can change you. He will change you. There is no limit to his power. So as we close this morning, let me offer a a few thoughts of application before we come to the table in just a moment. First, if you've never heard this message before, would you look at Christ for the very first time? And would you see that he has been lifted up for you and he can make you new? But secondly, I know most of you 
Uh, I know many of your stories. I know your friends and family. Many of you have friends and family that you would love to see come to know Jesus Christ and their lives to be made new. This is my application for you, and tonight at Pierce Group would be a perfect time to apply this. Would you pray for the wind to blow in places in which it has not blown before? Would you ask the Lord to do things in which only He can do in the lives of your neighbors and your friends and your family? Ask the Lord to do that. But then lastly, for everyone who sees the kingdom this morning, because at some point in your life He has opened your eyes, I ask you this morning, will you give praise to Him for what He has done? Because in His great and sovereign power, He has given you sight. He has done it. Will you worship Him? Jesus is the Lord. Amen. Let's pray now and ask the Lord to prepare us to come to His table. So Lord Jesus, again now we do pray. In thanksgiving for what you have done, thanksgiving for all that you will do, and Lord, we praise you this morning that you love us in Christ. May we see, may we experience the joy of your salvation. We pray this now, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.